The writer of the Gospel of John, namely John, concludes his account of the life and deeds of Jesus Christ in this way. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Jesus, though he died near the young age of 30, lived a full life. He made friends. He worked with his hands. He loved people. He performed miracles. He confronted evil. We could go on and on and on. We already have 66 authoritative books about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the 27 books of the New Testament, which explicitly detail and are inspired by his coming, his person, his work. But we have also the 39 books of the Old Testament, which when read, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, we can hear murmurings, foreshadowing, and sometimes trumpet blasts declaring this Savior's coming. We have, in these 66 authoritative books, everything we need to know about the most influential and multifaceted and glorious person who has ever lived. It is an embarrassment of riches. So I wonder, if you had to sum all 66 books of the Bible, and this man, Jesus Christ, this person, if you had to sum it up in one sentence, what would you say? Maybe you have a friend in your life who's asking you, who is Jesus? What did he do? Maybe they're a crazy friend, and they're like, one sentence, or I won't listen. I can't go past one sentence. There are people like this. They're short on time. They need an answer now. Who is Jesus? What was he about? What would you say? Maybe your friend is asking out loud the very question that Zacchaeus must have been thinking as he approached that sycamore tree. Who is Jesus? And what is he all about? Well, I suggest that in answering that question, you can never go wrong using Jesus' own words. In verse 10 of our passage this morning, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Just a few words capture the essence of Jesus' person and work. And so it is for us this morning to consider their meaning. What does it mean to say that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? Well, first, we have to understand what it means to be lost. What does the Bible have in mind when it describes people as lost? The fundamental picture of lostness is being spiritually astray from God. To be lost is to be spiritually astray from God. Lostness, human lostness, is a manifestation of human fallenness. The fact that we are fallen creatures, sinful creatures, lostness is a way of describing that. And as much of what we understand about what it means to be fallen comes from the first fall, that of our foreparents, Adam and Eve, 
so too we get glimpses into what it means to be lost by looking at that primordial account. Did you recognize that in the punishment that God issues out upon Adam and Eve, he curses the ground, um, he makes childbearing particularly painful, but he also banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. He banishes them from their true and intended home. So we read, in Genesis 3, 23 to 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Our first parents were cast out from their true and intended home. What had been their home becomes in their descendants, becomes in us, only a faint memory or an unspoken yearning for some bliss, for some perfection. It's amazing when you look at the world's religions how prevalent this idea is of there being an original blissful state. Most of the major religions of the world think that there was a golden age, there was a blissful original condition that human beings found themselves in. And it's a very natural thing to posit. Look at the world as it is now. It's certainly not perfect. It's not even close to perfect. There's suffering, there's pain, there's loss. There's relationships that are broken and breaking. We have this yearning for some perfect place. Many people explain this away, this longing for home, as wish fulfillment, projection of mere fantasy. Well, Christians, they believe that there was a Garden of Eden. They believe there was a good original state because they just can't handle how bad it is now. They just won't grow up. You've got to face life. Life is hard. Life is ultimately meaningless, and you die. That's it. Toughen up. But this notion is universal. People are longing for something beyond this world. They can't help themselves from longing, from longing for something beyond this world. It is their nature to long for something more than what we have here. Because nothing we have here can satisfy us. Nothing can give us what we want. We pretend that the things that satisfy us temporarily can give us that lasting satisfaction, but they can't. We lose our jobs. Our relationships crumble. Our hopes are dashed into pieces. This world does not have what we're longing for. This world as it is now is not our true home. This is not how things are supposed to be. But we are born into it, and we are born spiritual strays. We are born away from God, away from his care away from the intimacy that was shared in the Garden of Eden. We are longing for something. C.S. Lewis describes his conversion, and he supplies a number of arguments that convinced him of the truth of Christianity, one of which is an interesting one, the argument from desire. He noticed that in his, in his young life, he was pursuing pleasure, pursuing things that he thought would make him happy, but he found in himself a desire 
the true underlying desire that nothing in this world could satisfy. And he writes, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you feel lost this morning? Are you yearning for your true home? Do you see that this world is not your ultimate home? That this world cannot give you what you're looking for? To be lost is to be spiritually astray from God. It's to be wandering from the fold of God. And so we have, in Zacchaeus, before he meets Jesus, an instance of lostness. A person who senses that something is amiss. That his path is not the right path. He's compelled to see Jesus. We've been studying in Sunday school and also in service the parable of the prodigal son. And we've learned that the parable, though traditionally focuses on the one son, when we consider it and when we teach it, is really about two sons. There's the younger son who displays his lostness, his straying from God in licentiousness, wasteful living, everything we typically consider immorality, immoral behavior. He's a lost son. But we also have the older brother, who is likewise lost. He is lost in jealousy, in pride, in self-righteousness, in a hard heart that won't celebrate his brother's return, that clings to his own pride. There's a key difference between the younger brother and the older brother in the parable. In Luke 15, we read that the younger came to his senses. The younger came to himself. So the younger brother is lost, but then something changes. He comes to his senses. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and been discouraged, not by their antagonism to the message, but by their indifference? So you share the message with them, and instead of getting, that's a stupid gospel, I don't need that, that's just, it's wrong and it's dumb. Instead of getting that, which is clear enough, you know exactly what they're saying, and you know exactly how to deal with it, you might get, that's nice and all, but I feel pretty good. I feel like I'm on the right path, and if I veer off, I can find my way back. I know where I'm going. Things ultimately work out in the end. There are some people who have no idea they're lost. No idea. No idea that God is what they were made for. That fellowship with him is what their heart is truly after. You can plead with them. You can tell them you'll never be satisfied without God, without knowing God. And they'll just shrug it off. They have no sense that that's true of them. No awareness of their lostness. Then there are others who come to their senses, who come to themselves, whom, to whom God gives a glimmer, to whom God speaks, if silently, if quietly, something is amiss. I'm living my life astray. So I would suggest we find in the case of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus doesn't want to look for Jesus to point out all the ways he's wrong, as many people throughout the Gospels do. The Pharisees are just seemingly following him around all the time just so they can tell him all the ways that he's wrong. That is not the spirit that Zacchaeus 
is approaching Jesus in. But before we understand how Zacchaeus is compelled, we have to see that he's lost. And our text gives us a number of clues that he's lost. First, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. If you look at verse 7, you can see how upset the crowd is when Zacchaeus and Jesus meet up. They are furious. They are grumbling. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, a man who is a tax collector. If we know anything about tax collectors from ancient times, we know that they were not exactly the most honest people. They were not honest brokers. Tax collectors were notoriously corrupt, notoriously overcharged, notoriously took kickbacks, defrauding people. In addition to all that, Zacchaeus worked for the occupying power of the time, the Roman Empire. So he's not only a corrupt tax collector, he works for the enemy of Israel. He works for the Roman Empire. He's a traitor. He's a traitor and he's corrupt. It's funny, the word chief tax collector, that only shows up here in the whole Bible. It literally says arch tax collector. He was the best tax collector. Nobody was better than Zacchaeus. Nobody was more underhanded, more deceptive. Just nobody can compare to him. He's number one. And we know he's number one because he was rich. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He made lots of money doing what he did. Zacchaeus is lost. But Zacchaeus can't help going after Jesus. He is drawn to this person. He is not deterred by the many obstacles in his way. Do you notice there are a few obstacles? The first thing is he's really short. So there's all these normal height people, and then Zacchaeus is, I don't know, shorter than them. He can't see Jesus from where he's standing. He just, he can't see him. I don't know about you, but if somebody famous was walking through Boston and there were a bunch of giants, like 50 of them, and I couldn't see over them, I'd probably give up. I'd probably go home. Not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus decides to climb a tree. I need to see Jesus. In verse 4, we read, He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And in verse 3, we have, He was seeking to see who Jesus was. He wanted to know, who is Jesus? I need to know, who is Jesus? So Zacchaeus is lost. He's a corrupt tax collector. He's shunned by the community because of his practices. But he's not without hope because God has given him a sense of his lostness. He knows today, today I must see Jesus. I must learn who this is. So the lost are spiritually astray. And God sometimes gives the lost a sense of their lostness and compels them to seek out Jesus. And the first half of our passage looks a lot like Zacchaeus is doing all the seeking. 
It's all on Zacchaeus. And so it might be easy to read this passage and think, we need to seek Jesus, and that's absolutely true. Did you notice that Jesus knew that he was going to meet Zacchaeus? Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus, even as Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he operated under the assumption that that, would hit, that was his divine mission. That was why he came. He illustrated an awareness of this all the time. Think of the many times in scriptures where Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill the scriptures. My time has not yet come. My time has come. I must go here. I must do this. Jesus had a sense of the divine purpose. He was compelled everywhere and always by this central mission, seek and save the lost. Our text might give us the impression at first that this is just happenstance, coincidence. So the first verse, I love this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. The NIV translated as, he was passing through Jericho. Jesus just happened to be passing through Jericho. Just, he's just passing through. Zacchaeus just happened to be there, too. You know, he was just there. Maybe they'll meet somewhere in the middle. It looks like he's just passing through. But Jesus is walking to the sycamore tree. Jesus sees the sycamore tree. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Jesus knew Zacchaeus before he saw him in the sycamore tree. Do you notice that in verse 5, we read this. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He knew his name. How did he know his name? Nobody told him. Just a tax collector, Zacchaeus. Maybe he had heard rumors about the, the arch tax collector. But he speaks to him as if a friend, or someone he knows. And he did know Zacchaeus. He knew that at that very moment, as he was passing through Jericho, there would be Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. We, Zacchaeus, would be there. And today would be the day of Zacchaeus' salvation. You notice how urgent Jesus' language is. In verse 5, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Hurry up, for I must stay at your house today. This is the day. Today is your divine appointment. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Today. Not even today, this very instant. Hurry up and get down. What are you doing in the tree? Don't you know that today is the day of your salvation? And look at Zacchaeus' response right away. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. Zacchaeus was seeking out Jesus, and the moment he met him, he knew. The moment he saw Jesus and the moment he heard Jesus utter his name, he said, I will receive this person into my home. Today is the day of my salvation. So Jesus passed through Jericho with purpose to seek and save lost Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't just happen to be there. Zacchaeus didn't just happen to be there. Jesus knew Zacchaeus would be there. Jesus sought out lost Zacchaeus, we Zacchaeus, up in the sycamore tree. 
The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When Jesus utters this, his declarative, summative statement of the incident that has just occurred, the salvation of Zacchaeus, he's alluding to the book of Ezekiel, and most specifically to the 34th chapter of Ezekiel, which, as if by coincidence, was our call to worship this morning. In Ezekiel, we get a vivid picture of the lostness of God's people, the lostness of humanity. So in Ezekiel 34, verse 5 through 6, we read, My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. And that was the case. There was no shepherd. Jesus announces he is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of the sheep. In a somewhat prophetic passage, also in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 10, we read the following. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. God, in Jesus, came to be the shepherd of lost sheep, to rescue the spiritually astray, to find them, to bring them home. Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus' work and mission? The seeker and savior of the lost. The seeker, he comes. The savior, he saves. In our study of the parable of the prodigal son, As mentioned before, we have two brothers. We have the younger brother who leaves home to live recklessly. And we have the older brother who is proud, self-righteous, jealous. Notice in that parable that we don't get any indication that the brother left to look for the younger. No indication that he was upset when the younger left. No indication that he was in any way touched by his younger brother's departure. He does not do the duty of a good brother. He does not look for the younger brother. He does not leave the safety of his home, the comfort of family life, to risk danger or shame to find his younger brother. Tim Keller argues that Jesus 
is the true elder brother. Jesus went after the younger brother. Jesus came for us. He came for the lost. Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He could have. He determined to come to this earth to live a perfect life, to seek out the lost, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus died for the lost. This morning, do you feel lost? Do you feel that something is not right? Are you astray from God? Have you strayed from God? Are you lost? Well, there's good news for you. Jesus came to seek and save you. He didn't come to save a mass of people just with no personalities, no backgrounds, no flaws, no stories, no hopes, no fears. He came to save Zacchaeus. He came to save Steve, Jen, Bill. He came to save the lost. If you hear his voice this morning, rejoice. If he has saved you, rejoice. For the joy of the Lord is our strength.